0: the vent room where respiratory therapists can come and get a little inspiration. I'm your host, Dr. Tabitha Dragonberry. Today we're speaking with Lori Tinkler, the chief executive officer of the NBRC. Lori transitioned into the role of CEO about 2 years ago, and she's been with the NBRC for almost 29 years. Uh, could you tell the listeners a little about yourself and how you got to this point in your career? Sure. Um, I um, My little intro into respiratory care was
1: actually when I was in college. Uh, my college roommate had cystic fibrosis. And so that was really when I had my first um, awareness of what respiratory therapists did. And it while it didn't really spur me into a healthcare field, um, when I had an opportunity to apply for a position with the NBRC, I at least had some knowledge of what respiratory care was all about. Um, I started with the NBRC and helped them grow their subsidiary corporation, AMP. And um, when we sold AMP in 2015, um, I had an opportunity to continue um, in a leadership role with NBRC and uh, kind of come back home to my not for profit roots. And uh, I really enjoy it and um, look forward to what the future holds.
0: As a non-healthcare, non-respiratory therapist, what is your niche in assisting the respiratory profession through the NBRC? Um, I think what I
1: bring to the table is my um, kind of an outside perspective, if you will, and my business background, um, also working with state licensure agencies. My educational background is in bu- business and political science, so I was very involved when licensure was getting started in respiratory care, reviewing the legislation working with states to ensure that our credentials could be recognized as the basis for licensure. Um, so my background, while not healthcare related, um, I like to say I've learned enough to be a little bit dangerous, um, but I really enjoy it. And I have a very um, fond affinity for respiratory therapists and what they do and, and what they bring to the healthcare team. Um, I think respiratory therapists have
0: one of the most diverse skill sets of any allied health profession. I was recently reading the book Range by David Epstein and Epstein had said, when you bring together a group of people with the same background or a group of people with varying backgrounds, the group with the varied background will be able to come up with a more innovative idea than those with that same mindset. So actually bringing other people in with different backgrounds allows you to look at the same situation from different angles and actually increases the innovation. Right, and I think that's really true of the NBRC. Um, You know, we have a staff of 20 people
1: only two members of my staff have a respiratory therapy background. Um, what we do is uh, more the business side or the operational side of credentialing. And then our board members who are physicians and respiratory therapists, they're the content experts. They're the ones writing the test questions, um, ensuring Uh, that what we're testing is appropriate for practice Um, and then my staff is really trained in making sure that the exams are developed the way that they are intended to be developed Um, and they come from backgrounds with journalism and English and business and technology. Um, And so it really is interesting to see all the different perspectives come together and create great
0: solutions. So being at the helm of the NBRC, what's your vision for the NBRC and the respiratory profession over the next, let's say, five to 10 years? Um, Well,
1: I think for the NBRC specifically, we'll remain nimble. Um, and continue to promote and help grow the profession. Um, I think the profession is a little bit at a crossroads right now, um, maybe with a little bit of an identity crisis. And we want to do what we can within our mission, vision, and values to promote the profession and show that value of the respiratory therapist. And we are working collaboratively with our sister organizations, the AARC and COARC, to further that promotion of the profession. Um, It's critical. Um, As we know right now with the coronavirus and, and other respiratory diseases that are out there, Respiratory therapists are the best qualified um, to provide the care that these patients are going to need. And we need to do our part um, to create the awareness around respiratory therapy, whether that's recruiting into the profession, um, retaining people in the profession, um, and then just helping them understand and, and show their value and help them understand why it's important to be proud of what they do.
0: I've noticed some respiratory therapists do not necessarily really understand the full role of the MBRC, what is the actual role of the MBRC for the respiratory profession? Our mission is pretty finite. Um,
1: Really our our role is to ensure the minimum competency at entry into the practice as well as ongoing through our credential maintenance program. Um, We aren't the professional association, um, therefore advocacy isn't really in our bailiwick. Um, We aren't the providers of education. Um, But we do work collaboratively with those organizations where that is their mission. Um, And we do that, again, as I just said, to help promote the profession. But our job day in and day out is to ensure the minimum competency of practitioners as they enter the field.
0: Technically, respiratory doesn't fall under the title of a profession. And it's been more of a technical profession because Medicare, Medicaid, and the armed forces and independent contractors don't necessarily recognize that AS degree. Um, it's more of a technical degree, right? And a profession has more of a bachelor's for its entry level. I know that there's a big push to transition to a bachelor's as entry into the profession. Does this affect the MBRC or is it more of something that's the AARC or co-works role?
1: Well, it would definitely um, affect us. It would, you know, ultimately, if that, when we get to that, I don't want to say if, I think it's a matter of when, but I think it's a long ways off. Um, There's a lot of hurdles and challenges we have to face before we can just um, legislate baccalaureate degree entry into the profession. But it would ultimately change the admission policies for the NBRC's examinations, um, when that time would come but I think again as I said it's it's pretty far off um, we are working with the AARC on an ad hoc committee looking at what are the hurdles and what are the challenges of moving to a baccalaureate degree entry right now um, there's a shortage of respiratory therapists but there's also a decline in enrollments in an education programs um, and so we need to make sure that at the end of the day we have enough people to provide patient care And um, baccalaureate degree programs only make up about 20% uh, or so
0: of the accredited
1: programs in the United States right now.
0: I know that there's some areas that might be a little more difficult for respiratory therapists to get jobs out of school. Sometimes I hear a lot about California. I know recently I saw a news clipping on social media that in Oklahoma, they were desperately needing RTs even before this COVID-19 situation. So there's places that are hungry for our teas and places to consider if you're looking for work. Oh, absolutely. In any, really any rural
1: states, I know Iowa is having problems, um, Nebraska, um, you know, it's hard to incentivize people to come to some areas of the country where they think they might not, you know, enjoy it, but I, I really think there are opportunities throughout the country. Even here in Kansas City, uh, where the NBRC is headquartered, um, I facilitate a group of leaders in respiratory care um, department directors and managers who come together to talk about, you know, issues and there's a shortage and they're trying to figure out what to do about that even in some pretty big major metropolitan areas.
0: What does the NBRC do beyond developing and administering the exams? So I've
1: alluded to a little bit of this, um, ensuring the ongoing competency through our credential maintenance program. Um, so that's uh ensuring the ongoing assessment that individuals are continuing to learn and grow and document that through our credential maintenance program. And then of course promoting and supporting the profession through our initiatives. Um, for example, our specialty credentialing campaign um, to promote specialized. Respiratory therapist in neonatal pediatrics, adult critical care, uh, sleep disorders testing, and pulmonary function. Um, and again, really just making sure that we are doing the best job that we can to put qualified respiratory therapist into the workplace um, and making the process um, really as as easy as possible. We've done a lot with technology over the last few years to make the process um, as seamless as possible for individuals to get in, get tested as soon as they graduate, and really get to work um, as soon as they pass those exams.
0: I know there's been some changes to the Continuing Competency Program, what are the major highlights of those changes? So the most significant
1: change is an enhancement to Option 1 of the Credential Maintenance Program. Option 1 is documenting 30 hours of CE over the five-year period of your credential. Um, We've added an assessment component. And that assessment component is really an opportunity to show your ongoing learning, um, knowledge acquisition, and the assessments are optional. You do not have to participate in them, but we are highly encouraging it. Um, people have an opportunity to really show that they're staying current. Uh, the types of questions that are asked in those assessments are things that are changing rapidly in the practice and things that are putting the public at risk or patients at risk. Um, and so we did a, a little mini job analysis to determine the content that would be tested. We tell individuals what kind of content they will be presented with each quarter. Um, that's all public information on our website um, and so far. Uh, since we launched it in January. I think we've had very good success. People are engaging. Um, we're getting good positive feedback and we'll be providing some updates about that at the AARC Summer Forum in July.
0: What goes into keeping the exam's current intruded practice? So it's a process um, and it's a process that can take some time to
1: accomplish. Um, we employ a kind of a five-step process um, starting with a job analysis. And that process um, entails us surveying practitioners, educators, managers, directors, about what's being done on the job, what's being done most frequently, and what's most important to the role of a respiratory therapist. Um, From that, we derive a detailed content outline, and from that, we develop test questions. They are reviewed and revised by the examination committees. Um, We conduct a cut score study um, to determine what the pass/fail um, point will be, and then we validate those exams using um, a process where we correlate test scores with on-the-job performance as rated by someone's immediate supervisor. Um, and so, it's a it's a lengthy process, but it's one that is. Um, Utilized in the certification world, we are accredited by the national commissions for certifying agencies. They set out standards that we adhere to um, for best practices and, and so forth in the certification world. And our processes are really used as um, one of the premier um, organizations that, um, that uses these best practices to ensure that our examinations are valid and reliable. Are
0: there any new credentials on the horizon? Um, there's one right now that's being considered. Um, so
1: when we don't just kind of haphazardly say, okay, we're going to create a new exam, uh, one of our sponsoring organizations, so either the AARC or one of the three physician organizations that sponsors the NBRC has to ask us, to evaluate a new credentialing program. Uh, The AARC has asked us to look at developing a pulmonary disease educator examination program. Uh, We are in the process of that. And much like our exam development process, we have a process for looking at developing a new program. Um, It starts with a viability study. That's to determine the desirability and feasibility of creating such a program. Uh, We conducted that in September of last year the results were favorable. Um, Our board then decided to go to the next step in our process, which is a personnel survey. Uh, We are in the throes of doing that right now. Um, And so we'll kind of see what what turns up with that. What's unique about this program is that it would likely be multidisciplinary, which is something we've never done before. All of our exams are for respiratory therapists. Um, This particular exam, would look at potentially credentialing others in the healthcare arena, nurses, physicians, pharmacists, occupational therapists. Um, There's a whole host of other disciplines that could likely take this exam.
0: I know Ohio State's the first university to be offering the APRT curriculum, and I'm keeping an eye out on how they're leading the way on this. So when the first class graduates, there may not be an actual board exam for them to take, but obviously they've made these relationships within their community and the state level so that these graduates can be getting jobs when you're going to school for something, there's always that light at the end of the tunnel that it's gonna advance your career in some way. Um, Well, there's uh, the AARC again has an ad hoc
1: committee and um, I sit on that as well as a couple of my board members. Um, Again, a collaborative effort that we're all working on. I would say so far where that group is, uh, we've done a couple of surveys um, to determine if there's a need and where that need might be. Um, There's been a literature review done and a paper published um, regarding the gap um, that exists today and where there might be support for an advanced practice provider or a mid-level provider. Um, I think we're still very early on. Uh, We continue to talk about what it looks like. There'll be several presentations coming up at the Summer Forum, I know, um, talking about it with state licensure agencies and how does this affect scope of practice or how do we get APRT written into licensure laws. Um, It's very different than uh, what we have right now and if you are familiar with how long it took to get licensure in 49 states, it took over 20 years. So to get APRT written into every licensure law could take some time. Um, But things are coming along. There's now one accredited education program um, at The Ohio State University. Um, But it's going to take time. But I think it's something that uh, we'll continue to work towards. So
0: just one more question on that. The students who graduate, let's say, in two years, when and if there is an APRT exam, are they going to be able to just sit for those boards? Right. And so that's really where the states are.
1: I know in Ohio, for example, so they have the education program. Um, They're working with their state legislators to write something into their scope of practice
0: or have a license for an APRT. So, with that, there is accreditation for the APRT programs through COAR. Correct. Um,
1: yes, likely that would be the admission requirement: is that you have to be a graduate of an APRT program. Got it. So, there won't be an exam when those that first class class graduates. Um, we can't create an exam without knowing there's a job and there's enough people to fill it and um, sustain an ongoing program. Um, They will likely use some of the specialty exams, I'm thinking, as their outcomes measures. Um, And so it might look a little different. Of course, the education level is a master's degree. Um, And then I'm not sure, you know, all the details of their program yet, but they'll likely have some a combination of assessment uh, utilizing existing programs that we have.
0: It's a very gray area, right? I think it's great that Ohio State is leading the charge on this and they're on the cusp of innovation. Yes, and they already have
1: standards. And so the Ohio State University program is the first one to be accredited by (laughs) COARC.
0: But I know a lot of states aren't willing to open their practice acts for licensure, even just to move from the CRT credential entry to RRT credential. Um, I've been in some states that there's always a big debate on whether we should open the practice act. There's a lot of states not willing to because they're at a point that they'll feel they'll get pushed back from other professions. When... A practice acts open, there can actually be some pillaging or other professions saying that they want to take things out because it's their role. Right. Right. I
1: think the political climate right now is such that they don't really want to open up their practice acts. We saw some momentum um, for a brief bit. There's six states currently, and I just learned of one more uh, that's moving to the RRT. Um, So there'll be seven And, um, you know, hopefully that momentum will pick up again, but I think it's, there's a lot of issues and if they can change it at the rules and regs level, that's easier, much easier. Um, But it's opening that practice act and risking, you know, the downside. Um, of what could happen if you open up your practice act.
0: I know a lot of people question why we can't just get rid of the CRT credential. To my understanding, for the most part, as long as states are issuing licenses to CRTs, the NBRC needs to service the community. Am I correct in saying that? Correct. And again, at the end of the day, it's
1: about patient care. So, you know, I would say more people today than 10 years ago are going on and earning their RRT. But there are people who are still practicing at the CRT level. 42 states still license at the CRT level. Um, but I think employers are also driving the RRT. You know, when st- all states go to the RRT as the minimum requirement, the CRT will likely fade away. But until then, we've got to make sure we've got enough people to provide the care that's needed for the patients. Um, and our exams are valid, they're reliable. Um, They do ensure minimum competency. And, you know, as we were speaking about before, the rural areas are having a hard time attracting people to come and work there. And so if you've got good qualified CRTs providing the care, then, you know, we have to continue to offer that credential.
0: No, that's definitely interesting. On another topic, I know that some RTs want to know what the dues or fees for recredentialing go to when they pay either annually or every five years. So how are those funds used? Sure, so the $25 fee that we charge per year,
1: and that is now um, we've kind of shifted. That fee is for your credential maintenance and or supporting the NBRC if your credentials are not subject to the credential maintenance program. Um, Aside from exam fees, that is our only other source of revenue. Um, so, it assists with research projects like looking into developing new examination programs, conducting viability studies, conducting personnel surveys, um, doing other surveys of the profession um, on topics that we're working with to promote the profession, uh, the other things that we're doing collaboratively with AARC and COARC. Um, so really, you know, exam fees is our primary source of revenue. Uh, we have not changed our exam fees in over 20 years. So there's not much you can buy today uh, for the same price that you paid for it 20 years ago. Um, and we haven't changed
0: that $25 annual fee either. What are the consequences for those who do not recredential on time? OK, so if you don't uh, recredential, then your
1: credentials expired. You are no longer authorized to use the credential acronym. Um If your employer or your state licensing board or anyone else were to call to verify your credentials, it would say your credential is expired and that you have not maintained it under the credential maintenance program. Um, If someone does continue to use it and their credential has expired and they've been reported to us, then they would go before our judicial and ethics committee, which could result in them having their uh, eligibility for future exams suspended. Um, And so, it's really important, I think, for individuals to, one... One to show that they're documenting their ongoing competency, but also it's a it's professionalism. It's it's showing your value um, to your constituencies and maintaining your credentials and maintaining your professionalism.
0: I know some employers require you to keep your credentials up as part of being employed. I know usually I get a little note that reminds me my credentials are up and I need to re up them. So. What happens if somebody doesn't recredential on time? They don't recognize or see the notices when it's getting close. What's the process to actually get your credentials back if you've let them lapse? So we have a 6 month we have a 6 month grace period.
1: So if they fail to recertify, um, if within 6 months following that expiration date, they can still document their 30 hours of CE that has to have been earned during the five-year period, though, um, they can still document that, pay a fee, and then uh, their credential is reinstated. After that six-month grace period, they have to start all over.
0: So if they have to start all over, they have to sit for the boards again? They would have to take the TM. So let's
1: say they let their RRT credential expire. Uh, they would have to take the TMC, pass at the high cut score, take the ClinSim, pass that exam in order to get their credential back.
0: So it's a lot of work and it's more money, you know. (laughs) For CRTs who are currently out there who may want to get their RRT due to the change in the market, what's the process for them? Um, Yeah, well,
1: there's two options for them. So if they're graduates of associate degree granting um, education programs, they're eligible to come and sit for the TMC, pass it at the high cut score go on and take the CLINSIM. If they don't meet the eligibility requirement um, of being an associate degree graduate, then we have what are called the CRT to registry admission provisions. And they are alternative routes um, that CRTs can apply through. Uh, one is be a CRT for four years, have 62 semester hours of college credit, uh, some specific required courses, and then that deems them eligible to sit for the um, TMC and the CLINSIM. Um, There's also a route if they have an associate degree from a 100 level program uh, that they could have uh, be an associate degree graduate from a 100 level program with a certain number of years of experience as well, or they can have a baccalaureate degree in an area other than respiratory care and two years of experience and apply via that route. There
0: seems to be a lot of options. Is there a time frame if they graduate from an associate's program and they've been in RRT for, let's say, five years? Is it automatic that if their schools met the requirement, that they can sit for the rest of their boards? Um, So we
1: have um, a three-year time limit on eligibility for individuals who are new graduates. This went into effect in 2005. Um, So an individual has to earn their RRT within three years of graduation. Um, And if they don't, so let's say someone takes the TMC, uh, they pass at the low cut or the high cut, and they don't go on and take the cleanse sim, at the end of that three year period, they'd have to take the TMC over again and start over that process.
0: Um, so there is that three year time limit. So if they exceed those three years, they have to pretty much just start the board exam process over again. Right. Now that doesn't apply to those people who um earn their CRT prior
1: to 2005 when that policy went into effect. So if someone's going to apply one of the alternative routes, if they're a CRT and want to apply via one of the alternative routes, that three-year time limit doesn't apply to them. Because most of those people were um, credentialed prior to 2005. The
0: NBRC started something new with this one-year PIN anniversary for those who were first credentialed in 2018. Why did the NBRC start recognizing this one-year mark? Um,
1: In the past, we used to send a uniform patch with um, their certificate upon earning a credential. And what we were hearing was people weren't really utilizing the patches. They couldn't put them on their scrubs or their lab coats or whatever. Um, And so we discontinued the patch. And in place of that, we decided to really create another touch point with therapists. So they get their certificate and their wallet card um, upon earning the credential. And then on the one year anniversary, We're sending them a pin. Um, Our goal is really to touch therapists more than just when they earn their credential and then in five years when they renew. We want to be having a more ongoing conversation, more touch points. And so we thought this was a unique idea to recognize them, um, again, to say, hey, thanks for what you're doing
0: for the profession of respiratory care. Um, just another, another touch point. For those who might be interested, is there a way for any respiratory therapists to get involved with the NBRC? Um, absolutely. I think there's ways to to kind of start um, uh,
1: writing items. We're always looking for individuals who want to help contribute raw items, um, and we have a uh, staff that uh, will send out a call for volunteers. Um, certainly, they anybody who's interested can jot us an email, um, give us a call, let us know you're interested. We can add you to our database of um, potential future volunteers. It really starts at that level and if someone is successful and interested, there are other opportunities down the road. Um, We have consultants that um, work as content experts on our exam committees. Um, There are ultimately spots to join our board You know, if people are interested and they've shown that they have the skills to do uh, the work of the NBRC, and I think that's really key. We are a working board. Um, Our board members are volunteers. Um, They don't get paid. Um, They expend a lot of time and energy writing test questions, reviewing test questions, traveling to meetings um, to ensure that our exam programs are of the highest quality. Um, But there are definitely opportunities. Not a lot because we're not a huge organization, um, but there are
0: opportunities that do exist. I really appreciate your time today. I think that we've answered a lot of questions I see online on the role of the MBRC. The AARC is our professional organization for respiratory therapists. COARC is our education educational accrediting body and the NBRC's is our credentialing body. Basically, you're assuring that our credentials hold weight and have meaning to them. Absolutely. Um, and that's what we've
1: worked so hard for all these years since licensure came into play in the early 80s, is that the NBRC's credentials are the national credentials recognized by every state licensing agency, recognized by employers, recognized by the public. Um, as that gold standard and um, and that's what we continue to do every day to ensure the high quality examination programs that we meet the standards set out by our accrediting body um, and that we're doing what needs to be done at the end of the day to make sure that patients are getting the best possible care.
0: I know there's been some changes to the continuing competency program making it more of a credential maintenance program. What are some of the factors contributing to this and who does this affect?
1: Yeah. So, we implemented a waiting period between attempts uh, that went into effect on January 1 of 2020. And what that means is um, for the TMC and ClinSim exam, you have three opportunities to take it with no waits in between. Um, if you're not successful uh, on that third attempt, then you will have to wait 120 days before you take the exam again. Um, we've imposed this policy uh, because of uh, information that we've been looking at over the last several years that individuals who repeatedly take the test take the test take the test are overexposed to items and ultimately they're passing for the wrong reasons um, and so this gives someone an opportunity to do some remediation make sure they um, know the material that they've been educated on the material um, And so far, uh, you know, we know that almost 90% of applicants do pass inside their first three attempts. So we're talking about a very small portion of people um, that are going to have
0: to wait. In response to this COVID-19 situation, I know that the NBRC has now put like out a a more need more RTs campaign. How is that working? Or do you think it's drawing people into the profession or I know it's helping promote the profession as as we are the frontline leaders in this pandemic. Sure. I think our,
1: our reasoning behind doing it was kind of trifold, if you will. So one, it was to thank respiratory therapists uh, from our physician colleagues, for them to be able to thank respiratory therapists for what they're doing, not only now during COVID-19, but what they've always been doing and what they'll be doing in the future. Um, also, to promote awareness of the profession. Uh, you know, that we have a uh, a shortage. And so we wanted to focus on recruitment and retention. And we feel like the campaign is doing that as well. Um, and then really, again, this whole awareness, not only for people that want to enter the profession, but for the public um, to know who respiratory therapists are and that, that they're at the bedside um, and for people to be able to share their stories um, and Hopefully encourage others, um, to either join the profession or stay in the profession. Um, and so I think we're making good traction. We've had a lot of media coverage. Um, there's some hopefully other things coming down the pike that might give us even more national media coverage and, um, we're very excited about where it can go, and I think it's a, a launching pad, hopefully, for a bigger campaign that we can do um, on a multi-year basis.
0: No, definitely. I think this is the time that we need to seize our moment, and I've never seen respiratory therapy so in the news across the United States um, because we are those unsung heroes in the sense of unless you've really needed us in the hospital, you've never you don't learn about respiratory like you always see doctors and nurses everywhere but most people that i know in the profession when you talk about your your origin story it's more you know my family member had a disease and i met respiratory therapists or my child was in the hospital and i met respiratory therapists and they've been exposed to the profession so it's it's to get it more on a national scale of hey it's not just the doctor nurse and at the bedside there is that third group that for specialized patients that were there. So I know one of the big challenges that students have faced in this COVID-19 situation has the sudden knee jerk to put everything online for school. And, and it might not be the best experience because as, for me as an instructional designer on the other side, uh, going to online learning is usually something that's really planned. You have all these cogs that need to be filled. But, you know, we can't just stop education. So a lot of students are going to Zoom and and we're trying to fill that in. I know that the NBRC is making some, they are working towards making sure that people can take their board exams because, right, we have this pandemic, we need RTs, but we have to get those credentials. What are you guys doing to ensure People are able to test. So, you know, that's
1: our job is to make sure we can get people tested. And, um, the test centers, uh, closed in the, you know, third week of March. And of course that caused, um, huge concern with graduation coming up in April, May and June. Um, we were able to work with our testing agency, um, to identify about 80 test centers that they were able to get open under um, an essential channel. So where they had government contracts, we were able to open up some test centers. So that was our first phase. And then while we were doing that, we were working behind the scenes to stand up a remote proctoring solution so that candidates can take the exam in a live remote proctored environment um, from their homes. And we stood that up. Um, on April 30th. So, you know, in pretty short order, we were able to get that up and running. It is not a platform we've ever administered exams before in. Um, I think people expected us to, you know, snap our fingers and make things happen, but technology doesn't work that way. Um, but I would say in very short order, we got some solutions up and running. Um, more, brick-and-mortar test centers are starting to open, um, but it is kind of a day-by-day day thing. Um, you know, as states and jurisdictions start to reopen, and then they close down again. Um, it's affecting test center availability, but we're working very closely with the testing agency and, um, you know, making sure that candidates know what's available. So in the last few weeks, we've seen an increase in candidates testing. People are out there testing. Um, and we're very thankful that we've been able to, to kind of get back in business and, um, be up and running. We're not at 300 locations across the United States yet. Um, as we were before COVID. Um, but we're getting there.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I know I have taken some proctored exams online, which really, I mean, it's, I find it very convenient, but I know for me, it was make sure your desk is clear. Um, Actually, you know, we weren't allowed to use the camera on the computer. We had to have like a free floating webcam that you could show the room, but for a candidate that is going through that online process, what should they expect or be prepared for so that they can make that a smooth experience? So,
1: there are some, there are a couple of documents on our website that I would direct them to be an FAQ, um, as well as kind of the policies and procedures and rules. So, they have to have a computer with a camera and audio. Um, they're going to be checked in just like they were as if they were going to a brick and mortar test center. They're going to have to show their identification, they're going to have to scan. The room that they're sitting in, um, they're going to have to show their hands. Uh, there's a lot of security procedures that they're going to have to comply with, um, and then the interaction with the proctor is all done via chat. So the proctor is watching them and can hear them, but um, the communication between the proctor and the candidate is all done
0: via a chat feature. Yeah, That's it. Sounds like very similar to some of the experiences I've had in the past, which I I. I found very good. Do you think this is something that they're going to leave that you guys will leave as an option or it's like a COVID only move on from there? Um,
1: I think that's yet to be seen. Um, Interestingly, at a long range planning meeting last year, we were talking about what is testing in the future look like? Well, you know, we were thinking future 10, 15 years. We weren't thinking now. Um, And then all of a sudden, you know, this hit us right in the face. And so, um, You know, I don't know yet. I think we're going to kind of evaluate how it goes, um, get some feedback from the people who took it via this modality, um, and then really evaluate whether or not it's something we want to keep in place ongoing or if it's something that we kind of put in our hip pocket and continue to refine. for what testing will look like in the future. I do believe that in the future, whatever that looks like 10, 15 years down the road, a lot of brick and mortar will go away. And I think it depends on how the virus continues to unfold.
0: No, and I think that it's definitely interesting because I mean, on average, how many people take exams in a year? Oh, we administer about 30,000 exams
1: per year. So, you know, we've got a lot of people going through test centers and that's across all of the exam programs. So that's individuals that are taking specialty exams and things of that nature. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a big number of exams that are being administered. And um, again, depending on how things change and what our new normal might look like, um, we might have to keep remote
0: proctoring as an option. No, totally, totally understand. Because I know even just when I took my exams umpteen years ago, uh, I had to drive like two to three hours to a test center, um, which, you know, I had, I took the night before, stayed in a hotel just so that I could be there in the morning. So I could see the convenience of it in the future, even prior to, right. But I guess, well, we have to see what our new normal is. It's, I think there's a big question mark. I think that you're going to have people who want to go back to the way everything was before. And I don't think that that's going to be the reality, but we need to find that fine balance between going crazy and, and, and being locked up in like hermits. Right. Exactly. Exactly.
1: We can't be in our, we can't be locked up forever and ever. You know, we're going to, people have to get outside.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we're social creatures and, and, it's making sure, I think this might open up some telehealth aspects for later. I think this is going to advance telehealth. Oh, later. absolutely. Well, for sure. And I think it already has.
1: I mean, even, you know, just in the primary care setting, um, you're already seeing that, um, you know, that's what they're talking about, at least, you know, here in the middle of the United States, if you need to have your well checked or something like that, most of those are being done via telehealth right now. Um, and so... I think it's definitely going to settle in as a norm for those kinds of of visits and potentially other kinds down the road.
0: So do you think, I I know I like to throw in these possibilities, is there a possibility for one day like a telerespiratory credential? I know that uh, RT Now, which is a good friend of the podcast, is like one of the first telerespiratory companies servicing patients. What do you think?
1: Um, you know, I think it's pretty early on to be thinking about that, but I think it's a possible, anything's a possibility. Um, you know, I don't know what that would look like. I, I think we would have to see if there's more and more respiratory therapists that start providing that kind of service and then potentially, yes. Um, you know, I think it could go hand in hand with maybe some of what we're doing with this pulmonary disease educator credential that we're looking at. Um, you know, part of that could become telehealth, you know, those people working with patients to help them manage their respiratory illnesses, um, whatever that is. Um, so yeah, I think it could become something of the future, um, depending on how, um, how widespread, uh, (laughs) that becomes over the next, you know, several years. Do we start to see more RTs doing things via telemedicine? No,
0: I totally agree. But I, I I think this is an exciting time in the sense of I think that some of the challenges we'd faced previous in some of these telehealth and education areas might open up because, you know, people need their services, but the world is different than it was just in January. <laughs> Exactly. And I think that, you know, that's one of the things I've
1: said since we started the the World Needs More RTs campaign is, you know, you hate to leverage off of a bad situation. Um, and we were already talking about launching a campaign before COVID-19. But then when this hit, and again, while you don't want to leverage off of something bad, the opportunity was perfect for us it was perfect for the profession. It was a perfect time to say, Hey, let's bring some awareness, um, to these frontline unsung heroes. And, um, and hopefully, I mean, I've anecdotally, I've heard from some people that I know who said, Oh, my child is interested in getting into this field. And I'm like, okay, let me talk to them. I would be happy to. So I think there's definitely um, some good that's coming of it during a time that's very uncertain. Um, but I I think we're going to make the most of it. I think we're going to be able to carry on with the campaign and hopefully continue to create that awareness and um, bring more people into the profession.
0: Yeah. I mean, COVID is definitely something that's negatively impacted the world, but at the same time, you do have to take those opportunities to say, you know what, this is the first time respiratory therapists have been on the news across the country. um, So therefore You know, taking the opportunity. I feel like if we don't take this opportunity, it's missed, and then that's really the negative that we had this opportunity to grow. And if we don't take the bull by the horns, you have to create positives out of the negatives. Otherwise, it's just going to be too negative. Exactly,
1: and you know, no one else is going to do it for us. So we need to jump in there and move forward. And you know, our board was—you know, this was just kind of a little bit of a harebrained idea I had when, you know, we were talking about this larger campaign and then we pivoted and I said, why don't we do something, scale back a little, but change our focus a little bit of what we want this to be during this time. And our board was incredibly supportive and, and very involved. I mean, some of the videos are my board members and, um, you know, they're very excited and we're continuing to add stories. And I think that's what's, um, you know, the beauty of it is we're going to continue to add stories and we're going to continue to promote and um, find ways to make sure that everyone knows um, who a respiratory therapist is and that we need more of them.
0: So for those who want to tell their COVID story or their respiratory story, they can just go to Uh, morerts.com and they can submit for possibly doing that, correct? Yes, that's right. So go to morerts.com and if they scroll
1: to the bottom of that page, um, it says share your story and they can click on that link and there's a fillable form and they could submit their own video um, and yeah. So it's really simple, really easy to do. We've had several do that. We've done some, uh, you know, that we've worked with individuals to do their videos. Um, and that's an option as well.
0: No, that sounds cool. I mean, it's it's simple, it's it's convenient. And I think that the more people that share their stories, the the better it is for the profession and moving us forward. So definitely.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't just have to be about you know, their experience during COVID-19. I mean, obviously that's part of it, but we've got some folks that are new grads who are just talking about why they got into the profession. And, and you know, it'd be great to have more of those or people that have been in the profession for a long time and why they're passionate about it. Um, you know, we want stories that really tell the whole gamut of why people are in the profession.
0: I totally understand. So it doesn't matter where you're at in your, your career. If you have something to say, you share it with the NBRC and get it out there. Exactly. We would love that. Lori, thanks for your time today. Maybe, hopefully there's a listener out there that wants to get involved in the NBRC. I know that you guys go do a lot of work for us and now with the COVID-19 situation you're out there even further promoting the profession and I look forward to see what comes out of the MBRC in the coming time. That would be great. And one more plug before we sign off. Um, Our
1: website, we continually update our website with information. We have a whole host of instructional and informational videos. Um, We did do away with our quarterly newsletter, effective January 1 of 2020. And all of our news is now on our website and available to any respiratory therapist, regardless if they pay the $25 fee. Um, So... Check out our news section um, for the latest and greatest, and um, please know that we're here and available anytime anyone needs answers to questions.